This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, today on the podcast is Erna Kim Hackett, my friend who is a writer, a preacher, the founder of Liberated Together, which is a space for women of color doing justice work. Uh, and recently, um, I, I contacted Erna because I had heard, I had been getting this quote sent to me over and over again. And I'm like, what is this about Disney theology? And I'm like, then I saw Erna Hackett at the bottom of it. I was like, wait a minute, I know Erna. <laughs> Well, Erna, thanks for coming on the podcast uh, uh, and talking to us today. It's a pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. It's fun to hang out. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about this Disney theology thing, right? Like Because this thing was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. Um, and you told me you wrote this like, what, four or five years ago? A couple years ago, yeah. It came, it was kind of the fruit of processing that started for me, you know, 2014, 2015, after it was kind of the non-indictment of George Zimmerman and then the murder of Michael Brown Jr. and then the Ferguson uprising. And I was at that time embedded in a white evangelical organization. And so that post that ended up getting shared, that blog post and then uh, that I had written, and the quote comes from that blog post, I wrote in like 2017, I think. And it was okay. sort of the culmination of my processing of like oh, extricating wow. myself from like a more white theological space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It, but then I think people are currently going through a lot of what I was going through in 2015. And so right. I think that's why it became interesting all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but it's also very true, right? It's like this whole like notion of uh, people viewing God and faith and us viewing each other through this very sterilized, um, you know, non-messy lens. Well, and it's, and I think too, there's just this myth around theology that like, it's really um, abstract and esoteric and only people with degrees can talk about it. But yeah. actually we really live our theology on a day-to-day -day basis. It has very, very practical outworkings, but most, we're just not aware of it. You know, so this mm -hmm. the Disney princess thing, one, I just feel like, look, Jesus made his theology like accessible to illiterate farmers. So I don't know why like Christians act so brand new. Like it has to be incomprehensible to <laughs> people who haven't accumulated a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt for yeah. God to really care about it. <laughs> I'm just trying to make like our theological realities accessible to, yeah. to us. Cause we do, they do shape us, but we just don't always have language for it. So what is your, what's your theological background? Like, what are you, what, what, where do you draw from to like sure. your theology and thoughts on it? Well, I grew up in a Korean Seventh-day Adventist church, a tiny little immigrant church, which is very, like, I think the immigrant church is amazing in terms of being like a life boat place of culture and survival for people who are going through tons of trauma from immigration. So I don't really judge mm. what it was, but it was mm. a pretty duty motivated context. Mm. And then a friend of mine in high school took me to young life and what, and um, this white Presbyterian church. And I was like, it was like rah, rah, Jesus time. You know, they were like, Jesus loves you. And this like a really upbeat guitar song. <laughs> and, uh, of course, guitar songs. Of course, guitar you songs. You gotta have guitar songs. Uh, does Jesus even show up for anything else? 
no no other instrument brings Jesus like a guitar. No, no. Um, so much to say about that. But uh, and then I went to college. I became part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which I I was very interested in issues of race in high school, and mm. so I like started the Asian American group. And the first thing we did was run the Martin Luther King Jr. Assembly and talk about like the LA riots. You know, I was like, because not just like black folks care about MLK and race. And so this is me in high school in Seattle in 1992. So then I found like a context in college where it was like an intersection of faith and race. And I was like, this is cool. And then I went to Fuller Seminary for a little while, and then I dropped out and went to music <laughs> school. <laughs> but I, I didn't have language for it, but there was so many, like, 20-something white guys who just felt so entitled to say shit to me about mm. how they didn't believe in women in leadership. And, you know, just I had encountered that from my students for a long time, but I just was... Like, what, what am I smelling? What am I experiencing here? Mm-hmm. And so I dropped out. And then I would say where the vast amount of my current theological formation came was I did a master's program with the Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Oh, wow. And it's a program that's taught by all Native American um, and First Nations Christian professors. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and it's just... Uh, their point is to decolonize us from like a Western worldview and invite us into an indigenized theology. Wow. So, and a lot of yours co-learners are also indigenous and first nations people. And so that was where I really got a lot of language to begin to really um, get outside of theology that had just been like the air that I breathed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then at the same time, as I was doing that, we were going through 2015, 2016 with Ferguson, and I was in a cohort with friends who introduced me to James Cone and Black Liberation Theology and Dolores Williams and Womanist Theology. So I would say in the last six years, I'm very, very formed by these indigenous thinkers and Black Liberation and Womanist the- theologians. But I, my, before that, was my bookshelf my bookshelf full of John Piper? Okay. <laughs> you don't know who John Piper is. John Piper is so conservative around like gender and ladies can't preach or like all masculinity will come to an end. And yeah. yeah that's so my formation. You, so so this this is the thing that I, I find myself sometimes like really interested in is that like there are there'll be like women who will subscribe to notions like John Piper's. And like, we'll just sit there and be fine with it. And and I imagine that there was a season that like, you were like, oh, okay, I guess if he says I can't be a leader, I can't be a leader. I'll go home and bake some cookies. <laughs> like, what, what, like, <laughs> but like, what, what is, what, how, do, how do, how do people get entangled in it? A, and then how do you untangle yourself from it? I mean, I think I felt tension with it, obviously, because I perceived myself as a leader. But I think when you grow up in an evangelical framework, you're like, well, you, if you love Jesus, you love the Bible, and this is what the Bible says. Mm. Um, and there's nobody else presenting any other options, or anybody who's presenting another option gets framed as somebody who doesn't take the truth very seriously. So mm. why would you even want to listen to them? And honestly, internalized patriarchy and internalized white supremacy is real. I mean, we've all seen people of color who ascribe to totally white supremacist assumptions. Yep. We've seen internalized anti-blackness among like yep. people of color. We've seen, so I, I just think that mm. you get told 
that this is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is, I get you, you kind of like live with the dissonance. Um, but it was, it, it's funny. I, but I also think I never question. I think it became more of an issue after I graduated from college. Cause when you're in college, it's sort of like, you're not like leading in the church, mm. right? You're just like a, still a youth leader. So when I went into full-time ministry, it became a bigger deal. But I think even then too, there's internalized reasons why I never saw myself working at a church, or I think why I didn't feel pressed to finish my MDiv. Cause I don't think I ever saw myself as a pastor. Mm. And so mm. I think like, it wasn't until I was in my thirties and my peers that I had gone to college with were pastors. And I was like, these mugs are pastors. I could be a pastor if he can be a pastor. But it, it didn't occur to me until then. Cause I had just, I didn't see it. So, I mean, I don't know. You have to have seen or experienced that yourself too, right? Just yeah. when you internalize BS that it goes against well, your own liberation. For sure. <laughs> I mean, I spent a long time um, in white evangelical space. Uh, believing things about black church, about black people, about myself, uh, participating in things that were like totally anti-black, but didn't even realize I was doing it. I, I, I can remember feeling like, like I, I think had I encountered myself today, like five years ago, I would be very critical of myself. Oh my God. So true. Oh yes. Like, yeah. I'd yes. be very much like, like I would, I'd be very, I think I was extreme. I'd call myself stuff like Malcolm X, which people have called me in the past, which is ironic because a lot of people don't even understand or know what Malcolm X was about. But like, I mean, it's just so, so I definitely understand it. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's valid that you point that out that we all sort of, we, we don't know what we don't know and we process what we're hearing. And certainly when it comes to faith and religion, like, who are we to question God in the way that we've heard about God, which is which kind of leads me to something else I wanted to ask you about, because a good portion of people listening to Existential have left church years ago or mm-hmm. had never been a part of church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Richard Rohr talks about how Christianity is most useful, not competing with everyone and everyone else's beliefs, but actually as a way of enhancing people's lives and, and coming alongside of things that people believe, which I loved as I loved him pointing that out. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on where Christianity sits, like authentic practiced Christian faith mm-hmm. in the current social conversations about race and gender and immigration and, you know, and sexual identity. What, what, what place does actual faith play yeah. in all of that. I mean, I appreciate the distinction that you're making because I mean, we just have to name that what is out there is a white supremacist, like, um, you know, heteronormative, but really like queer phobic, mm-hmm. patriarchal, like slave to capitalism, oh, um, you know, nationalist religion yeah. that has like, some symbolism that comes from a tradition connected to following yeah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think if you can begin to extricate your extricate following Jesus and the Jesus way from all that to something that actually has to do with, and I mean, I think if there's, you know, I don't want to ha- sound arrogant and be like, and I have now extricated. <laughs> I hope that me ten years from now will look at me now and be like, sis, you have so far to go. You know, yeah. I feel like. That's some of the leaving of that rigid evangelicalism is like you give up on the sense that like you've arrived and have answers. But I think I've moved 
and I have a sense of, I think what it has to offer, I mean, there is still something unbelievably beautiful to me about the an authentic encounter with God and with Jesus and with Jesus's teachings. Like mm-hmm. my, my life passage of scripture is the story of Mary and Elizabeth. So Jesus's mom. And when she finds out that she's going to have a baby and it's the beginning of the gospel of Luke. And it basically opens with like this guy who you think is going to be the bomb because he's like this religious leader getting silenced and having Mm. to not talk anymore. And then this girl that nobody's paying any attention to, she gets this invitation to partner with the living God after he asks for her consent to partner mm. with her in that way. I think mm. a lot about Mary from the perspective of consent lately. <laughs> and wow. then her and Elizabeth, her cousin, get to create this like really radical community where they theologize in Elizabeth's home. So mm. the place that is typically written off because it's like the woman's sphere becomes like the where theology is happening in the book mm. of Luke. So mm. I just feel like people like people that are written off, women who are written mm. off, uneducated people, people without theological education come in. And then Mary does this whole like theological treatise that people like to dismiss as like pregnant lady poetry, but it's very radical, socio-political like reckoning. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's so lit that like, um, you know, different colonizing governments and like dictatorships forbid it from being read, said, or sung in public because it was like so empowering to like the poor and to the marginalized. And so I feel like when you look at that and then you see that Jesus comes and his own teaching, like riffs off of his mom's teaching, then Mm. I'm like, I'm about that. I can follow Mm. that guy and I can be about this thing that, um, that doesn't insist on being in the temple and, and, uh, Mm. and has radical teenage girls at like the center of it. Like I'm down with that cause. Um, you just have to like extricate it from all the the toxicity. Um, I think that that has a lot to say because our society is still clearly like struggling with patriarchy. We're just such Mm -hmm. slaves, like toxic capitalism. So Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot to say. And I think at the deepest level, something that, really where we hold space for each other's full humanity, Mm. which is what I think justice work really is about. I know people think it's about like being mean on Twitter, (laughs) 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 but like, I don't think it's, I mean, and I'm not, and this isn't to say that I don't agree with like tone patrolling or telling, like saying that like black folks can't be angry. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm. I'm talking Mm. about, but this approach to justice, that's very one dimensional. And, uh, and I think actually, though, it is about something really beautiful and robust where we're like, mm-hmm. really have space to see the divine in each other. Like that's mm-hmm. real justice work to me. I think we yeah. need more of that, not less. For so sure. For sure. Are, yeah. I don't know. What about you? Like, how yeah. do you, like, what do you feel like it has to offer? You must feel like it has stuff to offer you putting this conversation out into the world. <laughs> well, but, and I think I, I actually, I, I don't normally go this far into the Christian tradition on the on the podcast and I, and I love that we have because as I'm listening to you talk I'm, I'm hearing you talk about something that's very subversive to culture um I've, I've for a long time been a huge fan of the Magnificat of Mary song because of what you just described of how radical and just how it's I mean if someone were to read that today like in in context, 
it would cause people to go into an uprising. I mean, you're talking about the mighty being pulled down from their thrones. That's a, that's a, that's violent rhetoric. And so to me, I love that you brought that up. And as I, as I listened to you, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've thought for a while, people don't have a problem as much with the whole mystical understanding of Jesus. Like, like, so let's take the virgin birth as an example. I, I like that's something that scholars for years have debated going back and forth over and something that is pretty difficult to believe. However, I've been watching more and more people, certainly younger than both of us, go into like tarot card readings and yes. and, and like into all of these other mystical spaces, which they have no problem with. So all this time, we as in the Christian tradition have thought, well, we gotta. We, the problem is that we have these these things that are hard to believe, and we have these mystical things, and 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 we believe in people walking on water and multiplying food and all this other kind of stuff. But the problem has actually always been that Christianity, I shouldn't say always, here in America, stopped speaking for and to the marginalized and started being about capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and upholding power. So I love that you, I, I, like that's where, that's where I think it's most useful is in deconstructing the things that oppress people. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think part of, so this loops back to your opening question about the Disney princess theology. Yeah. I think because there's no analysis, power analysis, people with power who are doing, um, who are privileged in systems, they don't see themselves as being privileged. And so they don't see people on the margins and be like, oh my God, this theology is for them. They mm -hmm. just see all theology as for them all the time. That's the wow. Disney princess thing is like, wow. yeah. you know, Mary's theology is like, who is society not paying any attention to? Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be uh, here, indigenous people, uh, disabled people, you know, our queer folks and the people living at the intersection of all of those things. So like, what about our like queer disability activists and folks, right, trying to bring voice to that? Mm. But they'll read passages and they'll be like, it me, like every time. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, I remember, I re the thing that solidified this for me, I was in a Facebook group and this person who was like a vice president in the organization was like, oh, I was studying Esther and I realized like, this is my Esther moment. And I was like, sis, <laughs> if you think you're Esther, but everybody else, anybody who's on the margins of this organization ex is experiencing you as Haman. So mm. if you don't know the story, it's basically like this woman who has to like hide her Jewish identity, ends up marrying this king. And then this guy who works for him basically sets up the genocide of her people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this woman is in within the organization at that time where they're trying to like, you know, purge everybody with affirming theology. And she is the sort of part of that trauma. And she is part of that policy. And yet she identifies not as the creator of trauma, but as the, Esther character. Wow. That's where wow. I was like, I'm done. I see it. I'm going <laughs> to name it. I know what this is. And, and so you just, people don't have a sense of their social location and how much power they wield. And so then they just perpetrate so much mm. violence against people mm. on the margins. Yeah. Yeah. That, that social location has been something that I, I didn't think about. Again, as we talked earlier about like when we internalize our own oppression and our own, um, you know, our, our, our our own harm, we internalize it and we just sort of accept it. And I didn't think about that 
whole social location thing before. I just, I read scriptures and engaged in the Christian faith as if God was talking directly to America the whole time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, so, and so in every story I was, you know, I'm, I'm always seeing myself on the, on the good side of it and, and all of the white male pastors that I was listening to that were preaching, they were identifying themselves as Jesus on the cross and not the Roman centurion who put him there. Like, it's just such a, it's such a like gnarly thing to like start to think about yourself as like, wait a minute, this wasn't, I'm, this wasn't written about or really even to me. Oh. Like this whole notion of us being grafted into this later on, like it's not even something that I ever even thought about. So, so now I look at it and I go, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think it's responsible of me to try to like administer this as if like, as if I'm, as if it's mine. It's not, it's like, I'm, I am, I am a part of something that's so much bigger than myself. And I'm now reading scriptures kind of stumbling over them. Like I read, when I read Jesus now, to be dead honest, I'm sometimes like, I don't know what the hell Jesus is talking. I don't know (laughs) what he's talking about. So I'm like, I'm not Jewish. I'm not in the first century. I'm not a farmer. I'm not a peasant. I'm not illiterate. I like all of these things. So as he's talking to a group of people who are all of those things, I'm like, I I, I got nothing here. <laughs> I don't know. Right? Exactly. And I do think that that's what's really disconcerting for people, anybody who's come out of a more evangelical tradition, because I think part of what people really grieve when they leave that is that sense of clarity. Like you mm-hmm. are you know, and which I think is weird because we are talking about an invisible God mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and yet we've like taken all the mystery out of it. For sure. For I sure. One, of the, one of the most helpful tools to me, my friend Lenore Three Stars, who was a student with me in my program, and, and she's a Lakota woman, speaker, teacher. And she goes, um, she did some teaching for one of the cohorts that uh, I'm leading for women over 30 in uh, Liberated Together. And she taught a story, and then we were asking all these questions. You know, it was like a, a part of her oral tradition. We were like, what does this represent? What does that represent? And she mm. goes, you know, this is very Western. Y'all trying to, like, master it and know it and, like, have all the information. And she goes, instead, why don't you just ask yourself how, from what I do understand, can this make me a better relative? Mm. And that question is, like, the new question for all my spiritual formation is, like, I don't really know everything that's going on in this Bible passage, but from what I do understand, how can it make me a better relative? Mm. And I'm like, and usually there's some enough in there that I can like move on it, you know? Mm. And uh, after I do the work of trying to get it out of white supremacy and patriarchy, then I just, mm. um, but that's yeah. really helpful to me. I think it's super helpful. And I think the mystery, I think, I think you tapping into this notion that there's this, we need to leave space for mystery and the things that we don't know. And I think not leaving that space in any faith tradition or any like social construct is it's what makes it hard for people because they, not everyone can fit in this small, you know, constricted space where everyone has to believe the same things, dress the same way, act the same way. And we get, we have categories for people. Or if you're a woman then you have to sit over here and do this and cover your head and, and, and wear something down to your ankles, like all of those things, it's just too small. It and is. when you're talking about a creator of multiple galaxies and planets and everything that's been like that, that has been designed and arranged it's impossible to think or should be impossible for us to think when we think about that to go, oh, yeah, we, we got it all. We, we, we understand it. We can we can minimize it down to this thing that restricts people. And and I just I think that's 
to answer the question I asked you probably 20 minutes ago, (laughs) I think that is the most useful part of Christian faith is it is one of the things in the world that offers some practice and tradition um, and ancient sort of commentary on things that we all face in our world, things that we all rest, things that we all deal with. And I love this notion of like asking ourselves questions like, how does this help me to blank? How does this help me be a better, better relative? How does this help me to resist the injustice that I see around me? I think those are great. I think those are great questions to ask when we're dealing with anything. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like, how does this help me like see the full humanity of someone else? Christians love to use the phrase Imago Dei, but I don't do it because I'm like, why would you got to be Latin and then it's more godly? That's hella colonized. Like, let it all go, saints. <laughs> I mean, you can do it, but I'm like, why do people feel like it's fancier when it's in Latin? Right. Yeah, exactly. Or King, or King James. English. Yeah. Like, Let's get liberated, man. Like, just say it in normal ways. Beautiful segue, by the way. So I want to talk about Liberated Together, which yeah. is something that you founded. And, and you were telling me uh, off air, which I, I find this pretty interesting and funny, actually, that like when you first started trying to do this work, right? You said back, what, 2015, 2016, it was crickets and tumbleweed blowing through the thing. And then after George Floyd, it's now this thing that is really exploding and, and people are signing up for it. So could you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Liberated Together, what it is, why you started it, and yeah. what you hope to accomplish with it? Yeah, thank you for asking. I love talking about it because I'm so passionate. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's the very genesis of it was that, uh, probably in the 2014-15, there was a group of women of color, amazing Women, some of whom you know me, like Dr. Shaniqua, she wrote Black Women and the Burden of Strength, Too Heavy a Yoke, or Christina Cleveland. There was a group of women who came together, um, and we created a Women of Color conference. And it was my first time doing something like that, and it was just powerful, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of disbanded because everybody went through some real trauma post-first election of 45. So. Everybody yeah, yeah. riding the struggle bus, and I think really some some tension around people's proximity to white evangelicalism, and just didn't mm. feel like they come together in the same way. Mm. Then, uh, like a a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, maybe I posted on Facebook, like, "Hey, y'all, I woke up, had just had this dream that um, of gathering women of color together, and uh, who are in leaders, and just uh, investing in us, and I'm going to call it grown ass women doing awesome ass shit." <laughs> <laughs> And um, like over 200 women commented and they were like, do it. We mm. need it. And I was mm. like, what? And then one woman piped in and she's like, if you change the letters a little bit, it's grown ass women doing, uh, what is it? It was like grown ass women doing awesome ass stuff for Jesus. And it turns into the acronym Goddamn for Jesus. And so I was like, great. That'll be. <laughs> so I was like, okay. But my dream with it was, I realized as I do justice work, I, at that point I had been working in a black church for about a year, was wherever you go, women of color are doing heavy lifting. Mm. They are in justice spaces, they are doing heavy lifting. In white spaces, they are doing heavy lifting. Like wherever you go, and, and I particularly wanted the first cohort to be for women over 30, because by the time you're over 30, you've like moved up in your role a little bit. You are now on some diversity committee in your free time. You are now the mentor to all the young people of color who are 
don't have anyone to support them. You're the secret keeper of your problematic white supervisor. And, <laughs> and none of that has to do with the job you're actually getting paid to do. And nobody is looking out for you. Wow. And I was like, I want to create a space that is for these women and that helps us. One, we never have time to talk to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're always either trying to help our communities or trying to help whiteness do better. I want us to, I don't use the term woman of color with the assumption of solidarity. We have very different lived experiences. So where do we ever get to come and talk to one another? Hmm. And then two, how, who's, who can help us pursue justice in ways where that aren't extractive to us? Because almost every racial justice space I've ever been in is still highly patriarchal mm. and is embedded, and this is in the Christian spaces, is embedded in this belief that women should martyr themselves for the cause, be totally emotionally exhausted, mm. work on these workaholic principles for the sake of a future good that'll come later. And mm. I was like, no, I really believe that justice means believing in our health and well-being and deep community now. For sure. So I got this first cohort together. We gathered, funded a little fundraising, grown women over 30, got a beautiful Airbnb. We, and uh, got a friend to come in and cook like a six course meal for us. Mm. Got my friend Lenore Three Stars to come in and talk about indigenous worldview. And I think one of the things that meant the most to me was one of the women there, an indigenous woman who's in the cohort said, this is the first time in years that I can remember um, coming someplace and not being asked to produce anything. Mm. And I was like, I felt like an amen in my soul. Mm-hmm. And so to me, at the heart of Liberated Together is building deep community of understanding between women who are marginalized in different ways, as well as holding space for each other. Um, and we are also each other's amen corner. We have a very active like WhatsApp conversation, you know, where someone can jump in. And literally, it's like, where do we need to roll up and whose tires are we slashing? Like that sense of like, you have a squad that you don't have to explain yourself to. Um, now then, I don't know if you heard, Corey, there's a pandemic that's been um, rolling yeah. around. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some, some stuff about it, but it seems like there are some pockets of the world where, or at least in America, <laughs> where there is no pandemic at all. No need for mask or distancing. That's a conversation for another day. A true story. Truest yeah. story. I really yeah. think that Disney princess theology is also part of how we ended up with some of the problematic responses <laughs> to COVID. But nevertheless, <laughs> pathological individualism. Asterisk sure. on that. But uh, so now we can't meet in person. And that really grieves me because I do think that a lot of what the space I want to create is embodied. But yeah. now post-COVID, we've, I've shifted to more like online, kind of more learning-based cohorts. And I felt like Asian American folks feel more open here in old 2020 than in 2015. So Mm -hmm. I just was like, I'm going to put out the call. Maybe I'll start an online cohort for Asian American women where we can talk about anti-blackness and how we engage in race. Because I think uh, like literally a no racial justice conversation is anyone like, wait, hold the phone. Don't start till an Asian American woman is present. (laughs) Nobody's ever thinking about us. So then we don't know how to participate. But as I can, someone who for 20 years has been inserting herself into these conversations, I was like, mm. do something. Mm. I was envisioning like a cohort for like 15, 20 women. Over 100 women applied. Wow. So I was like, oh, the temperature has changed around mm. people's readiness to engage in a more robust way. And so I am now finishing up the second of those two of, of eight cohorts for Asian American women. They're just six weeks long. They're very short, but they're just a chance to create a little bit of community and give some frameworks for how 
we could fit in. So that's some of what's happening with Liberating Together. And I love it. (laughs) That is super dope, man. Like, and I, I hadn't really had, I don't think I've had a conversation about Asian Americans fitting into the conversation of anti-blackness mm. uh, on existential, which is a shame because I've had, I've had Kathy Kong on twice and I'm not sure that this is something we actually talked about, yeah. but like, like I want to, I want to sit there for a second, like, I, yeah. cause you brought that up and I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on, on that and how um, Asian Americans show up in, in this conversation. Yeah. I think that there's a couple categories that are helpful as I talk to Asian American folks about it. The first um, and I'm Korean American, so I kind of come from a more East Asian perspective. So one, um, I think, let's is understand. I have people read um, Andy Smith's uh, heteronormativity and the three pillars of white supremacy, because what's really helpful about that article is that white supremacy enacts itself on different communities in different ways, and so we can participate in each other's marginalization. So she talks mm. about um, genocide and settler colonialism and capitalism and uh, the slave ability of black bodies, and then like the perpetual othering that can happen now mm. to people in the Middle East and has happened to Asian people um, at different points. And then we see a resurgence of that right now in the kind of COVID era. I th- so I think it ha- helps to give people language to go like, we're ex- we experience white supremacy in different ways. So we don't have to compete with each other. We just get impacted differently. And then the second thing is to realize like the black-white binary exists and that the agreement that, or the um, framework of the model minority myth was really, hey, black folks were organizing in the civil rights movement. They were disrupting a lot. They were calling white supremacy to account. And basically to create a counter narrative, they go, hey, let's take Asian Americans who we used to hate, World War II, we like put them in internment camps, right? Mm-hmm. Or we, or we did some of the first race-based, like anti-immigration, um, race-based immigration policy around Asians. But now let's go, they're the best. Let's say they're doing so good and like how they're the good ethnics and we'll give them a little proximity to whiteness, but you can only have a model minority if you have a non-model minority. So the model minority myth is based in anti-blackness. And so Mm. having talked to Asian Americans about how if we agree with the model minority in any myth in any way, we're agreeing to an anti-black framework. So even Mm. if it sounds like a compliment, it's not because anti-blackness kills people. Wow. We cannot agree to it in any way or be a part of it in any way. Um, That Mm. is one thing we talk about. The second thing I talk about with Asian American folks in these conversations is reclaiming Asian American identity as a political identity. Mm. So right now it kind of gets talked about like there's pan Asian ethnic identity, but I feel like, no, our ethnic identity is like our countries of origin. Like my mom came from Korea, right? That's my Mm. culture. That's my ethnicity. When Asian American identity was created, it was around like, third world liberation front organizing to get like ethnic studies in coming into solidarity with like black and brown folks. And so it wasn't really like we have a shared culture. It's that you are Asian American if you're also trying to overthrow empire, militarism, white supremacy. Mm. So it's like political mm. identity. But now mm. it's sort of gotten softened up into like you're Asian American if you love boba. And I'm like, no, resist the softening of this identity and reclaim it as a political <laughs> identity. So I talk about wow. that. Um, and then that part of our culture is we tend to self-erase, you know, because we don't know where we fit. So we want to be helpful, but we sort of erase. So we either align too closely with whiteness and be like, are we like white people and need to be allies? Or are we like adopt um, mm. black practices, black civil rights, black liberation practices without understanding like, but we're not black. 
Like we have to participate as authentically ourselves. And even if other people don't know what to do with us, like we need to understand our own stories and participate because I have never been in any predominantly black liberation space where if you're showing up authentically and helpfully, anyone's been like, leave. I feel like <laughs> I appreciate authenticity and solidarity, but they don't, but I do feel like there's a little bit like it smells bad if you're showing up as like the vanilla ice of social justice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Be in yourself. Be in your how, how, how do you avoid that? How do you avoid showing up in the, you know, certainly for you since, because you've been doing this since 1992, but you have been engaging in, you know, anti-black, conversations and, and conversations about racism and white supremacy, like how have you avoided showing up in a way that's harmful? And maybe you have showed up some ways, sometimes <laughs> in ways that are harmful, but like, <laughs> but, but how, how do you navigate that, that whole, that whole yeah. thing? I think that a, a helpful, I mean, I think everyone makes mistakes along the way and I, sure. I definitely have. I think a lesson I learned is if there's an observation I have is that white people really want black folks to tell them that they're one of the good whites, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of exhausting labor that they want from black folks. Asian American folks often want black folks to tell them that they're legitimate people of color. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think you can show up in an unproblematic way. Don't put labor on black folks. It is not their labor. Like mm -hmm. it's on me to know my story, to make peace with my identity. And I, mm -hmm. it's complicated too, because I'm biracial. And so I'm not always like people's first, like Korean American folks aren't always sure what to do with me or if I'm part of the club. I always felt really jealous of biracial black folks because I felt like black folks had more of a category for embracing biracial black folks than Korean Americans did in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. I think there's more of a for category. Sure. For sure. So I think it's that, I need to understand and honor my mom's story of immigration, my own experiences of white supremacy, not need black folks to tell me I'm a person of color hmm. um, because I don't want to put that work on them. And then I'm just a big believer that uh, different communities move towards justice in their own way. And so what in indigenous spaces, what it means for me to show up and be a good relative to them is different than when I show up in black spaces. And so it's not about insisting on showing up in a way that I'm, uh, that I want. It's what speaks to this community in the, their movement towards liberation, using the language that speaks to them, using the frameworks that speaks to them, following their leadership, hmm. um, while knowing I'm doing that as a biracial Korean white woman and not trying wow. to pose for acceptance. So it's a long wow. answer, but does that make sense? Oh, that's an incredible answer. It's like the, I mean, that's probably the whole podcast. Like, as I think that idea of standing in your own story and in your own space and showing up as authentically that is really all you can do. And it's the healthiest way of being. But what you're talking about is, is the work you do before you show up. So mm -hmm. it's impossible for you to show up in a way that's, that's not harmful if you've not done the work before you show up of being okay with this is who I am. Mm -hmm. This is my mom's story. This is my dad's story. This is my story. I'm showing up with that story, and and I'm showing up with things to say from that story, and I'm also showing up from that story to learn about other people's stories. But what I'm not doing, and it's a love what you said, what I'm not doing is creating work for you to make me feel okay as I come alongside you to be your ally. 
Yes, there's just so much. Ugh, there's so much of that. There's just so much of that, and yeah, and I get it. You know, you it's you show up, you see what gets stirred up for you, you do your work, you show up again. You know what I see mm. happen often for people is they show up, they feel displaced, they feel uncomfortable, and then they just don't show up anymore. I feel like the one thing I have on my side mm. is. I just keep showing up. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the first time I attended um, this symposium, indigenous symposium that was part of my program. I literally walked around. I called someone my spirit animal, which uh, <laughs> hella inappropriate, right? I remember I said it in front of like a, a Native American brother, and he just was like, "Pardon," and I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't even know what I didn't know, you know. Yeah. And so I think there can be this like, but I learned. Mm-hmm. I stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I've said this before, but it's like, if you don't, if you, if you're, you don't get your spiritual formation into a place where you can handle pretty regularly, mm-hmm. like having your ego bruised mm-hmm. and like, you can't do any real work. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that's why women of color can do this stuff because we're constantly experiencing ego bruising where, wherever we go just to exist. Like you yeah. go in the church, every pastor I know told me I wasn't a legit leader for like the first 15 mm. years of me being in Christian ministry, that it wasn't as important as what was happening in the church and doot, doot, doot. And every place I went, like Korean folks told me I looked white. And every place I went, white folks told me I looked Korean. And like, you just experience it so constantly that like when it happens in other spaces, you're like, oh, you, you. but then I think it's yeah. the privilege you experience the more startling ego bruising experiences are and so in that way i'm like privilege is not on your side in this mm-hmm. kind of work mm-hmm. well Erna, this has been this has been really really fun i'm really i'm so glad you we, we are finally able to get together on the podcast and this has been great uh, i'm so appreciative of all the stuff you shared just thank you so much for your time today thank you thanks for having me this is really fun super fun so thanks so for much sure. for of being in this space with you. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much. Thanks to Erna for being on the podcast. She was amazing. Thank you to all of you who listened to this episode and all the other episodes of Existential. I want to thank you who are uh, Patreon subscribers. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for doing that. If you have not yet subscribed to the Patreon, you can click on the link in the show notes and you can become a part of that community as well. I'd also like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song you're listening to is called Sorry. And thank you to all of you for helping us to contend for a better world one conversation at a time.